we we broached the subject of the relationship of faith and works. This week we're just introducing ourselves to another great theme of the New Testament epistles and indeed of the whole New Testament and scripture, and that is the concept of children of God, being a child or being children of God. Now, this is an extremely common description in the New Testament. It's so common that we actually might not even notice it or not even think about it. What does it mean to be a child of God? How does one become a child of God? Why do the New Testament apostles so emphasize this description to us? How should we be impacted by the concept of children of God? That's what we want to begin to explore today. This is a topic that we can't even really, um, we can only begin to cover, but I think it will still be edifying for us to do so. Here's our agenda. We're just going to overview this concept as it appears throughout the scriptures, the fatherhood of God or people being children of God. Then we're going to look at two specific passages from 1 John 3 and Romans 8. And then finally, and briefly, we'll consider some application. Let's pray as we begin. Our Lord and God, our Father in heaven, God, I thank you for this time to look in your word, and I pray that you would open our eyes to this wonderful, astounding truth that we might be called children of God. Lord, I pray this be something that we think about more often and that as we look more closely at it today, we would be deeply affected. I pray that your spirit would do this as you help me to be able to explain it well. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's start with background and really the most basic question. What is a father? It may seem like a silly question. Don't we all know what a father is? In fact, it is one of the first realities that we encounter when we're born into this world. We encounter the reality of the parent-child relationship, specifically that we have a mother and that we have a father. We quickly learn, even as a baby, that a father is someone who, at least partly, is the source of his children. He's the source of the life of his children. Without the father, a child could not exist. The child owes his life and existence, at least partly, to the man who begot him, his father. We also quickly learn as children that because of the father's role as the originator of his children, the father almost automatically exercises authority over his children. He has a role of authority. He's able to command, to direct his children, and he expects obedience from his children. And from these two basic factors, almost intuitively, a child learns to, or quickly learns as he grows up, to revere or respect his father. Father is the source of the child's life, along with the mother, of course, and father, or God, really. And the father also exercises authority over the child, and so the, the child has a certain reverence for his father. Now, these are some basic facts of what a father is, but what else? Well, to explore further, we have to acknowledge that not every father is the same. Not every father is a good father. And even some of the best fathers are not perfect. Our experiences can readily attest to those facts, and we know that there is some variation among fathers. But I just want to share with you a couple more factors that I brainstormed of what typify a good father and a typical good father and child relationship. What does a good father do for his children? I just brainstormed seven factors, and it's useful for us to think through these things so that we have a background when we consider the fatherhood of God. What does a good father do for his children? Well, first off, he loves his children. A good father, besides being the source of his children's life, besides having authority, besides expecting reverence, he loves his children. He feels a genuine affection for them and a genuine desire for their good. And he shows this, not only in displays of affection, but also in the actions he takes towards his children. In response to the father's love, what ought the children to do? Well, express love back to the father. Again, through affection and through actions, especially obedience. The father not only loves his children, he provides for his children. 
He anticipates and he meets the needs of his children. This includes material needs like food, water, shelter, but also less material needs like encouragement, admonishment, confrontation, um, just the expression of love itself. Father meets the needs of his children. And how ought children to respond? How ought children to respond to their father's provisions? Well, with certainly with gratefulness, with contentment, with patient expectation. My father provides me, I'm waiting for that provision. Father loves, father provides. Father also protects. Father protects his children. A good father does not allow harm to come to his children does not expose his children to dangers when those children are not ready for those dangers or without some sort of purpose in exposing them to those dangers, some sort of training purpose. Again, this is something we readily know and experience in our world. Father protects his children from physical dangers, such as being hit by a car or being stolen by a stranger. But a father also protects his children from more abstract dangers in life, like the danger of a a self-destructive lifestyle or the danger of a uh, of a dangerous relationship. <clears throat> so father protects his children. How ought the children to respond to this protection? They ought to seek it. They ought to be grateful for it. And they ought to trust the father for his protection. Another thing the father does for his children is that he teaches his children. Good father wants to equip his children to be adequately prepared for a successful life. This includes practical skills like how to tie your shoes or how to do your laundry, but also he wants his children to understand themselves and understand the world. The more the child knows about the world, the more he'll be prepared to interact successfully in it. Father is especially concerned that his children would learn wisdom they will not make foolish decisions and suffer painful consequences. Now, how, how ought children to respond to their father's teaching, the father's instruction? Well, clearly they should listen to it. They should practice what the, the father teaches them. And they should endure through the teaching. Not just give up and say, oh, I don't want to listen anymore. Along with this teaching comes the discipline of the father. The father disciplines his children wants to instill the right ways in his child, even through some uncomfortable practice and even corrective discipline. This is momentarily painful for the child often when he has to endure some maybe difficult chores or he, he has to um, be corrected or to, um, to endure some discipline, but it's extremely useful, extremely important for the child so that he's prepared for life. Now, how ought a child to respond to his father's loving discipline? Well, he should accept it. He should even seek it and endure through it. Now, already you're probably seeing connections to the way the Bible speaks about God, and that's good. Two other things I want to mention. Besides loving, providing, protecting, teaching, and disciplining, father also models for his children. He provides a, an example or a role model for his children. Everything that the father does, the way he responds to life, to difficulty, to relationships, to the way he interacts with the mother, to the way he, he deals with money, other people, etc. These are all powerful examples to the child. A good father wants to set the best example as possible. Father should want his children to take up after him, to even be like him. Now, in some ways, children can't help but be like their parents, a son like his father, uh, a daughter like the mother, or even um, a daughter like her father and a son like his mother. Have you ever found your, this to be true even in your own family, in your own relationships? You found yourself doing something that your father did, even though you never even tried to learn it from him. Speaking like him or uh, saying something that he would say or acting like him. This is what happens. Children learn from their parents, even when they're not even thinking about it. But the father wants to be conscious of this, and he wants to set a good example for his children. Now, how ought, a children, how ought children to respond to their, or how ought children respond, to respond, yeah, to respond to their father's example? They want to imitate him. They see the good example he lives, and they want to become like him. That's true of a good father. 
Then finally, one other aspect of a good father I want to bring out is that a good father prepares for his children for their future. He not only provides for his children now, but he also makes sure that the children have a future, or he does his best at least to make sure. What does this look like today? Well, often uh, this kind of preparation includes, prep or includes specific provisions for the child's career or future education. Many fathers, some fathers choose to pay for their child's education, not only through um, elementary school and high school, but also even in college. Some parents or fathers will pay for part of or even all of a child's tuition. But in earlier days, the father did even more than this. In ancient times, for example, fathers were diligent to pass on a family trade to the children. Whatever job the father had, he would train the son in that trade. Or a father would also be very diligent to arrange a suitable marriage for his child, whether for a son or whether for a daughter. He wanted to secure the future for his children. But most importantly, a father arranged, and this is especially true in ancient times, the father made arrangements for the child's inheritance. A child would, or sons would receive property from their fathers, usually upon the father's death. While ladies of the house, they would receive other provisions. The father would make sure that they're taken care of by another family member or that they are taken care of in their husband's new household. He wanted to make sure that they had a future inheritance. And in most of these future preparations, the child doesn't actually receive that preparation immediately, but merely a promise of that preparation that would be fulfilled in the future. Father says, here's what I've done for you. It hasn't happened yet, but it will happen. Now, how ought a child to respond to his good father's preparation for those future provisions? He's to be grateful. He's to be patient. He's to look forward with hope, confidence, and trust, and even desire for that future provision. Now, we could add more to this list. This is not exhaustive. But I think this gives us a little, uh, a useful background for considering the fatherhood of God. But you can see kind of a three basics and then, then seven additional items of what a good father does for his children. Now, now, what do these things have to do with God? Well, as I said, as we've alluded to already, you shouldn't be surprised that father is one of the titles that God uses to describe himself throughout the scriptures. God is a father. And because God is righteous, loving, and holy, he is the best father. But to whom is God father? If he's a father, who are his children? Well, the Bible uses this term or uses this description for different relationships. And we'll just overview them briefly. In one sense, God is the father of all people. He's the father of all men. And why is this? Well, because just like earthly fathers, God is the source of all life. And therefore, he is also the authority over all men to whom he has given life, because God is creator. This is precisely Paul's argument in Acts 17. You remember we talked about that, um, that sermon from Paul in the city of Athens in Acts 17 recently. Paul makes an argument to the Athenians as to why they should repent and turn to God based on God being their father. He says, God made all things. We are his children. Why should we think that God needs something from us? If he's the one who gave us life. Like, why would he need a temple? Why would he need sacrifices from us? Or how is it that we think we can make God according to our own imagination when he's the one who made us? He's our father. We're his children. And as a father, God demands what is only right for a father to demand. This is Paul's argument. That is that his children should seek him. And in, in Paul's words, that's that all men should repent and they should worship God. So in one sense, God is the father of all people. Of course, man rejects this fatherhood by and large. Man rejects this creation fatherhood, rebels against their father, and they fall under God's wrath. But this is one sense of father. It's not the most frequently used sense of father in the Bible, but it is one. Another sense is God's, 
God's special fatherhood of Israel. God is father to Israel. God did not miraculously beget the people of Israel, though he did call out Abraham. But God chose this group of men, group of men and women, to be his people and to be a father to them, in a sense. God did things for the people of Israel just like a father would, even some of the things we discussed. He loved them, he provided for them, he protected them, he had authority over them, he expected reverence from them, all those things we previously discussed. And they were to be blessed, the people of Israel to be blessed by the fatherhood of God. But how did they respond to his fatherhood? Well, we look at some of the prophets and we can see how this description is used to describe Israel's unfitting reaction to their father. Consider what Isaiah says. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 to 3. God says to Israel through Isaiah, Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for Yahweh speaks, Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. They rejected the fatherhood of God, even Israel. Malachi 1.6 says, Malachi 1.6, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then, if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? So even though God was a great father to Israel, they did not honor him as father. They did not seek him as father. They did not love him. And of course, that was part of why God had to judge Israel. And why Israel is still in the state that it is today. But the Bible does speak of God as father to Israel. The Bible also speaks of God as a unique father to David's house and David's seed. Now this is really interesting because we see God as father in a broad sense, but now we're getting more specific. He's the father of all people, he's the father of a nation, but now even of a house and a bloodline? Consider what God says to David, and you'll remember this. This is something that we've alluded to in Sunday school many times. Consider what God says to David in 2 Samuel 7.14. This is part of his Davidic prom, or the promise of the Davidic covenant to David. God says, of David's seed, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. And we also see in the Psalms this same idea. Psalm 89, verses 26 to 27, Ethan the Ezraite, he's one of the psalm, psalm writers, he says this about David's house and seed. Psalm 89, verses 26 to 27, He will cry to me, you are my father, my God and the rock of my salvation. I shall also make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now why are these things so significant? Because no one in the Old Testament dared to call God his personal father. You might sometimes see people refer to our father. People of Israel might refer to God as our father. Solomon does that at one instance. The Jews do that in a couple instances in the New Testament. But no one calls God my father. And yet God prophetically says of David's seed, I will be father to his seed. Personal, I will be the personal father. A very individual relationship. But we can see where this leads because who in the New Testament is constantly calling God his father? Well, Jesus Christ. Jesus, son of Mary. And this is another sense that we see God as father in the Bible. This is the favorite title that Jesus uses when addressing God. He says, Father, or my father. And this drove the Pharisees and the Jews absolutely crazy. How can he do that? How can he call God his father? And they saw even in this that he was making a specific claim. You might remember this verse, John 5.18. John 5.18, it says, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You don't call God your father. You don't assume that kind of relationship with God. Unless 
there's something different about you. And clearly there was something very different about the man Jesus, and is that he, he was and is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. Now this is a unique aspect of God's fatherhood that only applies to the Son, the, the eternally begotten, uncreated member of the Trinity, the Son of God, has a unique relationship to his Father. No one can completely mimic that relationship. But it's on the basis, this, this fourth kind of sonship, this fourth kind of fatherhood in the Bible that actually results in the last one and the one that we're really trying to get at today. Because throughout Jesus's ministry, Jesus not only referred to God as my father, but even when speaking to his disciples, he would sometimes call God your father or your heavenly father. He would refer to God as the father of his followers. Particularly significant is John 20, verse 17. John 20, verse 17, this is where Jesus meets Mary Magdalene after rising from the, from the dead. And it says there, John 20, 17, Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. You might remember we made some comment about this verse. What's special about this declaration from Jesus? Go and tell my brethren such and such. This is the first time Jesus refers to his disciples as his brethren. It's not until after Jesus rises from the dead that he actually calls his disciples and followers, his brethren. And that's a term, that's a very important term, right? Because if you're a brother or sister of Jesus, then that means that you're part of the same family and that his father is your father, which is exactly what Jesus says to Mary. I go to my father and your father. And so it is this this final aspect of fatherhood that we see, especially in the New Testament, that God is the special father of believers, those that belong to Jesus, those that have been brought near to God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And this is all over the New Testament. In fact, Paul's letters often start with a greeting that emphasizes that God is the father of believers. Consider, this is what Paul writes in many of his letters. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You never hear that kind of thing in the Old Testament. This constant reference to God being Father of, of believers. But you hear it all over the place in the New Testament. Why? Well, this is experienced as a result of salvation. And because of that, it's not a fatherhood that everyone on earth experiences. It's only for believers. Rather, for those who are not believers in the Lord, not followers of Christ, they don't have God as Father in this way. Rather, they have a different Father. And John 8, 44 is very clear about that. Jesus is speaking to the Jews who are contesting some of the things he's telling them in John 8, 44. And this is what Jesus says to those Jews. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. And does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of all lies. Or the father of lies. So when we consider these various aspects of fatherhood in the Bible, we should see that, yes, in one sense, God is the father of all people. But in another sense, he's only the father of believers. And you want him to be your father in that way, because otherwise, you have a different father, the devil. And... You're going to act a certain way based on that. And you also have a certain future awaiting you based on that. Now, it's this last aspect of God's fatherhood, this last kind of fatherhood that I want to investigate a little bit more with you today. Why is it important or what does it mean for us that God is now our father since we've believed and repented because of Jesus? We can certainly apply many of the aspects that I discussed earlier, that God is the source of our life, that 
God has authority over us, that God loves us, that God provides for us, that God uh, trains us, etc. Those things do apply in this aspect of fatherhood. And if we were to investigate those various things in the New Testament, we would see those aspects. We don't have time to do that this morning, though. So I just want to look at two different passages that explore some of those ideas a little bit further. 1 John 3 and Romans 8. Let's start with 1 John. Turn to 1 John 3, please. See a little bit more about how the apostles talk about the fatherhood of God and what it means for us to be children of God. Now, just a little bit of background, quick background on 1 John 3. Remember the context. John is writing later in the first century, probably around AD 90. He's dealing with a heresy in the church, teaching that believers can live any way that they wish because whatever happens in the body doesn't matter. All you need is the secret knowledge of God, and you'll be saved. But John writes to reestablish what the true gospel is, how the true gospel affects behavior of believers by necessity. And one of the arguments he makes appears in the, the section of text we're going to look at. Look at 1 John 2.29 to 3.3. We'll make some comment on the rest of the chapter, but specifically I want to look at these verses. 1 John 2.29 to 3.3. Follow along with me as I read. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself, just as he is pure. All right, let's make some observations on these, on these verses. Notice how the last verse of the previous chapter introduces the idea of God as Father with the phrase, born of Him. And then we transition to a, a fuller discussion of that. Now, we've already discussed the idea of the new birth that comes about through God in previous lessons. Tied up in this phrase is that truth of salvation being totally of God. We were dead in trespasses and sins, totally helpless. We needed spiritual life, but that it could only come from outside ourselves, and God provided it to us. He caused us to be born again. And in this way, he became a father to us. But notice the phrase in verse 1, chapter 3. See how great a love. The author, Apostle John here, he quickly describes for us how we can see this great love that the Father has bestowed on us. It's not just... Uh, gesturing into the cosmos, see how great a love. No, he has something specifically in mind. How do we see the great love of God? Well, namely, that we should be called children of God, that we would be allowed to be called children of God. And note in verse 1 also that we see that the term Father is applied directly to God there, bestowed on us from the Father. If he's the Father, that we as believers are his children. He says, see how great a love that we should be called children of God. And then he says, and such we are. Now, this is interesting. John wants to point out to us, not only are we called children of God, but we actually are children of God. And I think that distinction is important. In human terms, what do we, what do we, what term do we use to designate a child who is not biologically a child of a family, but according to name and according to the law, he belongs to that family. Adoption, right? He may not biologically be a child, but he is called by that family name because he's been adopted into that family. So he says, we, applying this to John, we are called children of God, but we actually are children of God also. Then note the phrase that comes next, for this reason. Now, oftentimes that phrase is an indicator that the author is referring to something that he just said. 
But every so often, the author will use a phrase like that to point to something he's about to say. And we can see that here, the, the sense of the sentence is the latter situation. For this reason, um, the world does not know us. And what's that reason? Because it did not know him. It didn't know God. Now, what, what does this have to do with what he just said about being a father and being children? Well, we can apply it in this way. The world did not know or understand God, our father. Therefore, the world does not know or understand us, the children of the father. There's a connection because we are the children of the father. Now, note the contrast that appears in verse 2. We have a contrast between the now and what's coming in the future. It says, right now, we are children of God. But in the future, it's not yet appeared what we will be. But there is something we know about the future, because look at the rest of verse 2. What we do know is that when he, that is God, appears, we know that we will be like him. How do we know that? Why do we know that? John tells us the reason, because we will see him just as he is. And this knowledge will have, or this knowledge has an effect on us. Notice verse 3. It says, it refers to this hope. He who has this hope. Well, what hope? Well, the only item that could qualify as a hope has to be something related to the future. The only thing that's been mentioned about the future in this context is what we just discussed, that we will become like him in the future when we see him as he is. So that is what John refers to when he says this hope, he who has this hope of becoming like him, seeing him and becoming like him just as he is. And it's interesting that John uses the term hope here. He who has this hope, it's not merely an expectation or a promise. It is a hope, which tells us that it is something desirable. It's something that a person longs for. He looks forward to, he waits for. So he who has this, this wonderful hope of seeing God and being transformed into God's image, it has an effect on them. They do something now. What do they do? They purify themselves. Just as he, that is God, is pure. And how pure is God? Oh, he's perfectly pure. He's God. He's 100% holy. There's no holy... There's no one who is holy like God. And the person who has this hope, he purifies himself just as God is pure. So what do we do with these things? Let's talk about interpretation now. We've made these observations. We need to ask some questions. First, why was it such a great act of love that we should be called children of God? Certainly because of what it cost God to make us his children, yes. Because of the, the great sacrifice uh, that was um, required of the son, that love displayed and his being made a man and his living and dying as our substitute. Yes, Danny. Right. There's another aspect of this great love because of what we were. We were enemies of God, children of Satan. We were evil, rebellious, despicable sons and daughters. We hated our creator. We exalted ourselves. We rejected God's many overtures of peace to us. All we wanted was sin. We wanted nothing to do with God. We wanted God to die. We wanted to just go the way of Satan, our, our new father, the father we would rather have. And to such... And by the means of Jesus Christ, that costly, precious means, God himself made peace with us, and then he called us by his own name. He made us into his children. He brought us into his family. Why should we, considering what we were, what the attitude we had towards God, why should we be called by God's family name? There is no reason except for God's great and undeserved love. 
Now consider that for yourself personally. Consider your lack of worthiness to be called God's son or daughter. But if you believed in him, it is nonetheless a reality. You are called a child of God. You have God's name. You are his, part of his family. Now, in what sense are we called children of God and then are children of God? I think, while it's possible John may simply be reiterating that concept of adoption that we mentioned, that we are called his family, we are adopted, and indeed we are adopted. He may be emphasizing that. I think there's something more going on, though, because of this emphatic repetition. And I think some, uh, something might help us see this. Consider, what tease does every, maybe not every, but do often cruel older siblings like to play at one time or another on a younger brother or younger sister? They will say something along the lines of, you're not a real member of this family. You're only adopted. Right? And of course, that causes uh, great consternation in the, in the younger one. And someone might make the same accusation of believers. You are called a part of God's family, but if you're only adopted, yes, you have the rights and privileges of being part of God's family, but if you're not really a son, if you're not really a daughter, then you don't share his nature. Meaning that when it comes to sin, you're just as powerless against sin as you were before. Because after all, you don't really belong in this family. But there's something in the context that counters such an assertion, that you're only a child in name only. What in the context shows us that that's not really true? Go back to verse 29. It says, how did God become our father? Because, or yeah, verse 29, chapter 2, because we were born of him. We're born of him. So consider then the profound nature of our adoption by God. He not only calls us by his name, but he actually truly becomes our father, rewriting our DNA, as it were. And you can see this further in verse 9 of this chapter. It says that God's seed abides in the believer. Now, just as a father's seed abides in a child to make a child grow up, and to look like the Father. So God's spiritual seed abides even in his adopted children to give them life and to make them grow up into him, into his image. So then, God is not only the Father of believers by adoption, but also by regeneration. Adoption gives you and me the privileges of being part of God's family. But regeneration gives us the power of our Father to be like him, to become like him. And I think that's why John says, we are called children of God, and such we are. Now, verse 2 says that we will become like God when we see him as he is. Why does seeing God make us like him? Well, this really goes back to the profound nature of God's glory and power. To behold God in his glory is to be transformed by him. And a great example of this is Moses in the Old Testament. Recall that Moses spoke face to face with God, or at least that's the way the Bible describes it. He beheld God's glory in a very intimate way, and he began to bear the reflection of that glory in his own face. So much so that when Moses came back to the people of Israel, they hid from him because they were, they were scared of all the glory that was <clears throat> being reflected off of Moses' face. In the same way, as believers behold the beauty and the glory of God, believers cannot help but be conformed and transformed into the image of the God they behold. And this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He's talking about the believer's experience of sanctification on the earth. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, 
just as from the Lord, the Spirit. While that's true in a sanctification sense right now, it will be true in a, in a fuller way when we actually see him in the future. And we see him face to face. We see him just as he is. We'll be transformed to be like him. Now, verse 3 states that it's the believer's hope to be conformed into God's image in the future. Why should a believer desire to be like God, to be transformed into the very image of God? Well, God is the most glorious and worthy being in all existence. To be shaped into a reflection of the beauty and wondrous character of God is a great prospect of joy for the believer. I think a father-child analogy will help us understand this. When a son has a good father, especially if it's a young, young son, what does the son naturally desire to do? He wants to be like his father. The son desires this because what he sees in the father is beautiful. It's noble. It's admirable. And the young son, because he enjoys who his father is, he wants to become like him and is glad when he becomes so. So it is for believers. We are not glad to become like God so that we might somehow revel in our own glory. God's glorious. Now I'm like God. Look how glorious I am. No, we realize that we don't have anything good in ourselves. Rather, we want to become like our glorious God so that we might revel in him even more. We desire him and we admire and we, we love who he is so much that becoming like him is a great prospect of joy for us. Now, this does not mean that we ourselves will become deity. We're not becoming God or we're not becoming gods, but we become like him. We reflect the righteous beauty of God as we are transformed. And that is a great prospect of joy for the believer. And as a result of this, verse 3 says a believer purifies himself in the present. So why does this future hope of transformation lead to purification in the present? Well, again, I think this analogy of father and a child is helpful for illustration. If a child looks forward to truly becoming like his dad, like his father in the future, he's not content to merely leave such a transformation for later. He says, wow, someday I'll be like my dad. That's great. No, a child, if he loves his father, if his father is indeed a good father, he'll already, even in his youth, begin taking up after his father's ways. And you can see this sometimes in a, in a really... Um, cute way, especially if it's a young child, but this is even true of older children. If he really loves his father, if his father is really a good father, the son will start to act like his father. He'll talk like his father. He'll walk like his father. He'll want to dress like his father. He, want to do, he wants to do what his father does. He wants to conform himself more and more to the father's image so that, or more, more and more to the father's image now even as he looks forward to one day becoming the spitting image of his father. And so it is for believers. It is a great joy for us to think that we might one day resemble in a great and full way the purity of our great God. But we want to become pure now. If that's such a great joy for us in the future, we want to experience that now. We're eager to become more like him so that we might enjoy him all the more. And so we put off the sin that is so unlike our God. And we put on the righteous beliefs and thoughts, emotions, words, and actions that reflect who our God is. Now, if someone says that he is a child of God, but he doesn't look like it, and he's making no effort to become like his father, what conclusion, according to John's teaching, can one make of such a claimant? He's not a real child. He's not a real child. If he doesn't look like his father, 
doesn't act like his father, is not becoming conformed any at all into the image of his father, it's probably because he's not a real child of his father. And this is exactly John's argument in the rest of the chapter. We won't read through it. I encourage you to read through it on your own. But look at verse 10. 1 John 3.10. John says, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who's not, who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So in short, John says, if you're a child of God, if you're adopted into his family, and if you've been regenerated with the seed in you, then you're going to become like him because that's what true, true children of a good father do. If you, proclaim, if you proclaim that you belong to God, but act like the devil, you show who your father really is. You have no part in God's family. And therefore, you have no part in God's inheritance for his children. Now, as I've said before, we ultimately, as humans, we cannot see into someone's heart. So it's possible that we might encounter someone who claims to be a child of God. Doesn't really seem like it, but actually is. He's just confused or untaught or in a season of sin. But because of what we see from John here, we understand that if we see such a one, brotherly concern ought to move us to say, friend, brother, this is what I see, and I'm concerned about you. If God is truly your father, why aren't you taking up after him? This is part of John's argument in his book that if you're a believer, it's going to affect you. And one way to look at that is, God's your father. You're his child. You're going to be like your father. This is what John writes to us. Now, many of these same truths are echoed in Paul's writing in Romans 8. So let's turn over there now. We're not going to go as slowly through these verses. We, we don't have the time. But you will notice many parallels in this section of Romans that we're going to look at. Just to give you a little background on the context, Remember, the book of Romans is Paul's theological introduction to the church of Rome so that those believers might partner with Paul in ministry. And in the previous seven chapters, Paul explains how both Jew and Gentile are under God's wrath for sin, how salvation comes only by faith, how this faith leads to a life of holiness, and how mere adherence to moral rules, that is, the law, cannot produce a holy life. In the beginning part of Romans 8, which we don't, we don't have time to read, but Paul explains there how the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, through the gospel of Christ, is able to do what the law cannot do. The Spirit frees Christians from both the power and the penalty of sin. Through the gospel, Jesus perfectly fulfills all the moral rules of God, the law, on behalf of believers. Through the gospel, the, um, God gives life to previously spiritually dead believers, makes them alive, and he imparts his spirit to believers. Now notice what it says in verses 12 to 17, and this we will read. Romans 8 verses 12 to 17 says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Now notice just a few things. There are many parallels here to what we read what we read in First John. We see, first of all, because of God's salvation, and more specifically because of God's Spirit, believers cannot live any longer according to their old way, according to their old sinful desires. The spirit of adoption in believers now leads them to holiness as they cry, 
Abba, Father, after their God. Just as Jesus cried to the Father, he often addressed God by saying, Abba, Father. Now, side note, it has often been said that Abba means Daddy or Papa, but this is not quite accurate. Abba is literally Aramaic for my father. So while the term is full of affection and familiarity, it still has a sense of reverence in it that daddy doesn't quite capture. But anyways, through the spirit, believers have a new father that they now look to for help and deliverance. And believers cry, Abba, father. Now this spirit, this new spirit in the believer, it testifies to the believer of his sonship, both by the fruits of the spirit in the believer's life and that inner sense of belonging to God that comes from the spirit. But notice what verse 17 is, or verse 17 says, and this I want to key in on a little bit more. The fact that believers are children of God, Paul says, also means that they are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. Now, what does Christ inherit from the Father? He's a son. He has an inheritance. What's he going to inherit? Or what's he going to inherit? Everything. All things are going to be, be given to the Son. Rule of the entire universe is going to be given to the Son. So if we are also heirs, if we are co-heirs with Christ, then what will we inherit? Same thing. All things. This is why it says in other scriptures, all things belong to you. And that we will rule and reign with him. Such is the result of our sonship. But notice the end of verse 17. If you are children and fellow heirs, then understand that you must also experience what? You must suffer with Christ. If you're going to inherit with Christ, if you're going to reign with Christ, then you must also suffer with him. So that, to the end, that you will be glorified with him. Now, Paul explores this connection between suffering and a glorious inheritance further in the following verses. We can't, again, we can't take a close look at that, but I want to expose that to you. Look at verses 18 to 25. I think this will be very useful for you to meditate on as we move on from this lesson today. But verse 18 to 25, notice what Paul continues to say. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. But the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. So notice here we have another instance of what theologians sometimes call the already and not yet. Have we been adopted by God? Are we his children? Yes, that's why we have the spirit of adoption. But we're also looking forward to our adoption. We haven't received it in full yet. We're looking forward to the glory that will, that will be revealed when all of God's children are shown to be indeed his children before all the witnesses of the universe and they receive their inheritance. Now, such waiting, such expectant waiting will include suffering in the present. But just as a son of a great man in ancient days waited patiently for his inheritance, so we also, because of the great glory that is to be revealed in us, and for us, we do not become unsettled due to the small, comparatively small, sufferings of life. Rather, with eagerness, with perseverance, we wait for our full adoption. Now think on that for a moment. 
If you're a believer, you are God's child, you have been given a full inheritance as a co-heir with Christ. Imagine receiving that inheritance as best you can. Imagine what Paul describes here. This final unveiling of the sons of God, sons and daughters of God, and their inheritance being given them. Imagine that being given to you. If you are God's child, what did you ever do to deserve that? It is indeed, as John said in his passage, 1 John 3, see how great, what kind of love. This is a love that we do not understand or encounter in our world. What kind of love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. So, in sum, Paul, in light of our future inheritance as children of God, he urges a life of steadfast holiness in the meantime by God's Spirit. Now, of course, we've only skimmed the surface of what the New Testament says, has to say regarding our being children of God, regarding the believers being children of God. But I hope that even from this brief look that your spirits have been moved to meditate more on your sonship or daughtership what it means for you to be an inheritor and what all of this means for the holiness in your life and your hope for the future. Now, as we're winding down here, a few questions for you to think about as we close. We're considering application here. Most important of all is, are you a child of God? Are you really a child of God? Not just by creation. We're all children of God, in a sense, by creation. But are you regenerated by God, born again? And are you adopted by God? Does your spirit cry out, Abba, Father, by means of the Holy Spirit? Or does it instead cry for some idol? Do you long to be transformed into the image of God? Do you, with eagerness, look forward to the inheritance that will be yours in the future? Or do you... Merely serve your fleshly lusts? Do you live for your, or do you live for this present world? Do not be deceived. As John warns us, as Paul would warn us, the sons of the devil will end up just as the devil. They will be thrown into the lake of fire forever. But the sons of God, sons and daughters of God, they will reign with God. They will reign with Christ forever. Are you really his child? If you are, do you think much of your being part of God's family? Is that something that moves you? If not, why not? Do you think much of the inheritance to be given to you? How much does that come up in your minds? How much does that inform the way you look at life and the way you make decisions in life? The apostles considered the hope of what will be in the future crucial for our present sanctification. So if you think that you can be sanctified without really paying attention to what happens in the future, there's something off. Of course, there are other factors that motivate our sanctification, but this is the crucial one. How much is that part of your thinking? And then one other, one other thought. How do you view other Christians? Because... If you're a child of God, and so are they, and they're your brothers and sisters. They are in fellow inheritors with you. Do you treat them that way? Do you, for the sake of your father, for the sake of pleasing him, do you get along with your brothers and sisters? Or are you indifferent, contemptuous even, as if you were the only child of God? Consider Jesus' own attitude. He was not ashamed to call his people his brethren, and he endeavored to save and sanctify them. So what about you? That's it for this week. Next week, we sample what the epistles have to say about prayer. That'll be another big topic. But let's end with prayer. Our God, we thank you 
God, I pray that the people at Calvary, anyone who's listening to this message today, that they would think deeply on this. What? This is just beyond comprehension that we, even us, who are we? We would be called your children? That we would be inheritors with your son, Jesus Christ? That we would rule and reign with him forever? Why? Why should we ever be given such a gift? Why should we ever be blessed in such a lavish way? Oh, we who are only rebels hateful towards you, sons of the devil, but those whom you have made into your own sons and daughters. Oh God, thank you. I pray, Lord, that we would live worthy of this gospel, that we would be purified by the hope that we have for what will be in the future. I pray that you would do this work by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'll see you next week.